Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. We pray that the Lord speaks to you as you hear from His Word today. Psalm 63 is where we're going to read. Uh, We're going to ask you to read aloud this morning. We're all going to read together. And so if you have an NIV, you can read right out of your Bible or your app. But if not, feel free to read along with the screens. Of course, there's no pressure, but it is a beautiful sound to hear the people of God read the Word of God. So let's all stand together and read Psalm 63 aloud together. We'll start with the words of you, God. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you, I thirst for you, my whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and glory because your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live and in your name I will lift up my hands." I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I thank of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. Those who want to kill me will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God will glory in him, while the mouths of liars will be silenced. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Today I'll begin with a question. It's a simple question, but I'm going to ask you to search your heart, uh, just like I've had to search my heart this week. The question is this. Do you love the Lord? Do you really love the Lord? I'm not asking if you know the Bible or if you attend church or if you have a religious background, but I'm asking right now where you sit, do you you genuinely, with all of your heart, love the Lord? The Bible has some very sobering statements for us to search our hearts and, and to see the importance of whether or not we really do love the Lord. Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers." This morning, if you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, or there's never been a time when you've truly loved the Lord and put your faith in the Lord, our prayer for you today is that you will come to the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. He died on the cross for your sins. He arose from the grave. He lives today to save your soul. And the Bible clearly declares, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We want you to be a follower of Jesus. But the remainder of our message is for those of us who call ourselves Christians, followers of Christ. And in the next few minutes, I want to encourage you and ask you, uh, do you really love the Lord as well? There's sobering statements in the Bible for us, those who call ourselves Christ followers. 
about whether or not we love the Lord. Revelation chapter two in verses two through five, to the church, Jesus says this. I think much of this, some of this at least, could apply to Bible Center Church. I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name. You have not grown weary, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand or your influence from its place. In Revelation 3, Jesus said, I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. No idea why the music just came on. Right on cue. Uh, that one got me flustered. All right, here we go. We're going to... We're going to go and jump into the message now. The message is five ways or five signs you can know your heart has grown cold. And this past week, I've searched my own heart. Do any of these five signs apply to me? And some of them, several of them have. And so instead of thinking about somebody else who needs the message, I'm going to ask you to take a few minutes and figure out which ones of the five apply to you. And then we're going to end the sermon by giving you some practical ways uh, to fix or to remedy, to solve the problem of a cold heart. Number one, the first of the five signs. God has become a convenient addition to your life, not the consuming addiction of your life. God has become a convenient addition to your life, not the consuming addiction of your life. Psalm 63 was written by King David. King David was running for his life. Evidently, uh, one of the kings of Israel was after him. There's two possibilities about which king this could be. Number one, it could have been King Saul. And if so, you can read all about it in 1 Samuel chapter 23 and 24. David had been anointed king by Samuel, but King Saul was after David, wanted to kill him because he knew he was going to be his replacement. So David is hiding in the wilderness. He's hiding in the desert, running for his life. The other occasion could be 2 Samuel 15, when his son Absalom had made himself king. And Absalom's coming after his father. He wants to kill his dad so he can be confirmed and inaugurated as the king. And so we're not sure which one it was. I personally believe it was the first, that it was King Saul. Uh, that's not the popular opinion, but if you wanna know why I think that, uh, you can email me and I'll tell you why I think that. But even though he's running for his life, King David's seeking after God. Verse one, he says, you God are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. Verse one reminds me of one of the most famous statements in church history. This statement was written about AD 400 uh, by a pastor in North Africa, the late fourth, early fifth century. His name was Augustine of Hippo. He says, our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee. Our hearts are restless until they find rest in thee. 
Pastor John Piper put this in different words. He said, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So when you read verse one, you get the idea that to be a follower of Jesus, truly, it's almost an addiction. It's something that we pursue passionately. To follow God is an invitation to follow God with all of our hearts. Now, most of us know someone who wrestles with an addiction. The truth be known, all of us wrestle, I would argue, with one addiction or another. Some wrestle with an addiction to illicit drugs. Some wrestle with an addiction to prescription drugs and an overuse of those drugs. Some wrestle with an overuse of alcohol or to sex or pornography or to work or to our phones, right? Like we've got to have more likes or we've got to have that little red button show another email. And if we go an hour without somebody liking us or sending us an email, we, we begin to twitch because we feel as though we're not needed, right? So these addictions are things that all of us are familiar with. But here's my question. Would your friends and family characterize you as being addicted to God? Being addicted to God. This is where I had to search my heart this week because I think if you would ask all of my friends, ask my wife, ask my children, ask the people I work with, the pastors on our staff, I think most of them would tell you he is addicted and dedicated to the ministry. He is addicted and dedicated to Bible Center Church. But I wanna open my heart and confess to you that I wanna be addicted to God. And one of the first signs that we have a cold heart is that we are just, God is a convenient addition, not a addiction. What's the second sign that we have a cold heart? Number two, worship has become more of a duty than a delight. Worship has become more of a duty than a delight. Verse two. David said, I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Worship was not a problem for David. Worship was very much a delight. David had been kicked out of Jerusalem. He could no longer visit the tabernacle. Again, whether it be Saul or Absalom, he was expelled from the corporate worship where the people of God gathered. We, it's kind of like church. He could no longer come back to church because he could no longer come back to the town where the church was. Now we know in the New Testament that you can worship God anywhere. First Corinthians 10 31, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. But you can almost see, kind of like in our personal lives, you can see these pendulum swings throughout church history. Throughout the Middle Ages, for about a thousand years, when the established church and the, the church that was instituted by the government or approved by the government was in charge for about a thousand years, the pendulum was this way. The only way you were able to worship God was if you did it with the established church. You couldn't have your own Bible. You couldn't read the Bible on your own. The Bible wasn't even in your language to read on your own. So there was this pendulum swing that said, God meets with his people when they're gathered. And that's the only place God meets with his people. But I don't think that's our error today. I think that the error that we face in 2019 is the tendency to swing the pendulum the other way. Because we know, again, verses like 1 Corinthians 10, 31, we can worship God while we eat, while we drink, while we play ball. We can worship God while we're out in the woods. So why meet with a gathered church? 
Or why make church a priority? I mean, I might come once every six months if I'm lucky. Why make it a priority? Well, the reason is because it's a both and. We are called to worship God while we're outside of the gathered church, but the Bible puts a high priority on us meeting together. Listen to Hebrews chapter 12, something right now as I'm preaching, as fallen men and women are meeting together, broken men and women, me included, are meeting together to worship. This is what's going on. Hebrews 12, verses 20 through 24. The writer says, you have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. That's us. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. David craved the worship with God's people and they didn't even have all, this hadn't even been fulfilled yet. Imagine what's going on this morning as you've gathered to worship with the men and women and kids around you. I love what David says in verse, down in verse three. He describes how he loved to worship together in the sanctuary. He says, because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest foods, with singing lips, my mouth will praise you. We'll leave that verse on the screen for a minute. Think about verses three through five. Does that describe you when you come to the gathered church? For us, it's on Sundays. There may be a day we start a Saturday night service or a Thursday night service. But, but right now for Bible Center, that's, that's primarily on Sundays for our adult gathered services. Does this describe you? Does this describe me? Let's think about our, our lips, how we use our lips before we even come into the room. What do you talk about with people when you gather here at church? I remember as a kid, my dad was a deacon. And so when you're a deacon, there were no elders in the church I grew up in. There were just deacons. They acted as the board. And so I can remember one occasion, this guy coming to my dad and he was so mad about something. It was something trivial, but to him, it was a really, really big deal. And I was with my dad. I was just a kid. I might've been five or six years old. I'll never forget. The guy was so mad and in the hallway with his five or six year old son right there on his hand, just begin to tell him what was wrong with this, and what was wrong with that. And I remember as he left, I asked my dad, I was like, daddy, what's wrong with that guy? What's wrong with that guy? And dad said this, I'll never forget it. He said, he doesn't know how to hold his peace in the house of God. Do you know how to hold your peace in the house of God? What do you talk about? What do you argue about? What do you, are your words encouraging and they build up? And yes, we're honest and yes, we speak truth, but may God help us to say like David, my lips will glorify you. What about your singing lips? Now, not all of us have been gifted with singing. I'm definitely not one of them. My children tease me about singing, not just that it's bad, but that I somehow managed to sing all five parts while the song's going on. And there's only four parts, by the way. There's only four, but somehow it doesn't matter. God says, make a joyful noise unto the Lord. And I get it. Maybe that's not part of your personality and and man, you just, just, just to be here is, is a great thing. But I wanna encourage you to, to sing with the voice that God has given you. I love the singing this morning, to hear you sing the words of the gospel 
both in this service and at 9 a.m. Then notice he says his hands. I will lift up my hands. 1 Timothy 2.8 says to lift up holy hands without wrath and doubting. You know, it's okay for you to lift your hands in worship. Now, the Bible doesn't command it. It's not like you have to do it. But some of you, I can see it. You want to lift your hands, right? I mean, you get them to like right here, but it's just, oh, what if, you know, that's why I love to watch kids worship. Nobody's ever told kids what's cool and what's not cool. You go downstairs with Pastor Steve and you watch these kids worship, man, they are lifting up their hands and they are singing and they are wiggling and they are worshiping the Lord. But someday they're going to learn that that's not socially acceptable and that they need to keep it together and be dignified. May God help us to teach them the opposite and to show that, hey, if you wanna lift your hands, it's okay. If you're not a hand raiser, that's okay too, but sing with all of your heart because he says, I will be fully satisfied when I come together in worship. The second sign that our hearts have grown cold is that worship has become a duty instead of a delight. One of my older pastor friends says that whenever somebody comes to him and says that, pastor, I didn't like worship today, he lets them know, well, that's okay. We weren't worshiping you. Number three, how do we know if our hearts have grown cold? You love God's gifts more than you love God himself. You love God's gifts more than you love God himself. Verse three, because your love is better than life, he says, my lips will glorify you. Loving God with all of his heart wasn't a problem for David. He loved God. He appreciated God's gifts. But right now in Psalm 63, he wasn't experiencing very many of God's gifts. He was running alone. He may have had a band of criminals with him, some outcasts with him, but he wasn't snuggling up to his family. He wasn't enjoying a nice warm meal. He wasn't enjoying a soft bed. He was living in caves. But notice what he says in verse one. Count the times he says you. It's God that he wanted, not God's gifts. Verse one, earnestly I seek you, I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you. Now, verse two, I have seen you. Verse three, my lips will glorify you. Verse four, I will praise you. Verse five, with singing lips, my mouth will praise you. Verse six, I remember you. I think of you. Verse seven, you are my help. Verse eight, I cling to you. Now I'll ask the question today, is it wrong for us to be thankful for God's good gifts? Is that, is that wrong? Well, of course it's not wrong. It's actually right. James says that every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from above. It comes from the father of lights with whom there is no shadow of turning. God gives us all good things. The Lord is good. So it's totally okay to appreciate good gifts. Is it okay to appreciate money and possessions? Do you appreciate your money and your possessions? I do. This afternoon, I'm going to go and get some food. I'm going to appreciate the fact that I've got money to buy food. I'm thankful that I don't have to walk to downtown Charleston. I can, I can ride in a car. I'm very appreciative of that. Nothing wrong with appreciating what God has given you. The problem is, it's not a matter of how many possessions do we have. It's about do our possessions have us. 
He says, the love of money is the root of all evil. When we love money and possessions more than we love God, that's when it becomes an idol. And by the way, have you ever noticed that idols seldom are bad things by themselves? Often idols of our hearts are good things that have turned bad. They're good things that we love more than we love God. Is it wrong to appreciate your family? Of course not. But in Luke 14, Jesus says, if you don't love me more than you love father and mother and wife and children, you cannot be my disciple. It requires a love for God more than a love for family. Is it wrong to appreciate sex in marriage? Absolutely not. We did a whole series on that in Song of Solomon. Some of you are still getting over that series. Of course not. But the question is, do, do we love the gift more than the giver? That's when it becomes a problem. Is it wrong to pursue health and exercise? Well, of course not. Paul wrote to Timothy and he says, bodily exercise profits a little. In other words, it's okay as long as we keep it in perspective. Is it wrong to love friends and hobbies and sports and careers? Is it wrong for us to be thankful for heaven? Of course not, it's not wrong to be thankful for heaven. Here's where I'm worried though. I believe that there's a lot of people who think they're going there, but they're not because they love heaven, but they've never fallen in love with Jesus. Salvation isn't fire insurance from hell. Salvation is faith in the king of the universe. And one of the signs that our hearts have grown cold is that we love God's gifts more than God himself. Number four, we no longer carve out time to be alone with Jesus. We no longer carve out time to be alone with Jesus. Verse one, this wasn't a problem for David because he said, God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. The word earnestly is the Hebrew word for dawn. It can refer to early in the morning or it can refer to eagerly or with a priority. Both apply here. But let's just say he's talking about early in the morning. In verse six, he gives us the other side of that. He talks about nighttime, verse six. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night, verse seven. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. Just a quick teaching point here. This does not mean that God actually has wings. Uh, there's a bigger word for it called anthropomorphic expression. It just means that God sometimes refers to his wings, his legs, his eyes. He's using expressions that we understand from nature or from our own bodies. But what's important here is that David wanted to be with God. As I read about the early church in the book of Acts, Acts chapter four and verse 13, one of the marks, and I think one of the reasons they had such an impact in their world was because people knew the early church was spending time with Jesus. It wasn't just religious to them, religion to them. They, they really wanted to spend time with Jesus. Acts 4.13, when they saw the courage, these are the enemies of Jesus. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Let me ask you, how long has it been since you spent time with Jesus? I know life is busy and I know you have a thousand things on your plate, we all do, but we will never impact this city 
We will never saturate the city with the gospel unless we can fulfill this characteristic of the early church, and that is spending time with Jesus. They see it. When we're not loving and joyful and peaceful and patient and faithful and humble and meek and self-disciplined, how in the world can we expect us to make an impact on them? God invites us to spend time with him. The fourth sign that we have a cold heart is that we no longer carve out time to be alone with Jesus. Number five, the fifth and final characteristic that you know you've got a cold heart developing is that you've developed a negative and hopeless outlook on life. You've developed a negative and hopeless outlook on life. What David says next sounds kind of negative, but I want you to think it in terms of like the United States and our enemies or someone who might attack the United States. This was actually a hopeful statement. Verse nine, David says, those who want to kill me will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. The mouths of liars will be silenced. David was saying, I'm confident we are going to win the war. This is a statement of hope, a statement of confidence, a a statement of faith. What about you? Are you known for being a person who's faith-filled and hopeful? Or are you known for being a person who's faithless and hopeless? Now, we all have bad days. And God's invited us all to speak the truth. Not everything we say is going to be easy to say. Not everything we say is going to be fun to say, right? If you have, if you have a community group of people or a group of Christian friends with whom you do life, you know, sometimes you, you got to speak hard things. We all need that. But that's not my question. My question is this. When you walk down the aisle at Kroger and we see you coming, is our natural tendency to come toward you or to go on the aisle next to you, away from you. That really is the test. Are you known around here at church for being a a curmudgeon, somebody who's complaining and mad and arguing? Or are you known as someone who tries to be life-giving? Because the scriptures invite us to be hopeful and faith-filled. The sky isn't always falling. And if the sky is falling, God's promised to make a new sky in a new heaven and a new earth. Again, why is it so important that we fix this? In a second, I'm gonna give you this last main point, how to fix it, but why is it important that we, we address these issues? I think one reason is because one day we're all gonna stand before the judgment, every one of us. We're all going to stand before judgment. My job is to help you have a good day on that great day. It's to help you have a good day on that great day when you stand before the Lord. And thankfully, I've got pastors who are working in my life to help me do the same. One day we're going to meet the Lord and everything we say and everything we do will be laid bare. And I wanna help you have a good day on that great day. And so if you've seen your heart has grown cold and maybe it's not totally cold, but it's kind of in this lukewarm, I wanna help you snap out of it because it's important that you be ready to have a good day on that great day of judgment. Again, another reason is that we wanna saturate the city with the gospel. This city won't care about our gospel if we're living in these five characteristics, if God is just a convenience to us, if worship is just a duty to us, 
if we love our stuff more than we love God, if we're not carving out time to be with Jesus, if we're always negative and hopeless, Charleston won't want what we have. So why is this? So how do we fix it? If you look with me in verse three in a second, the answer is this, find a way every day to believe and receive God's love. Find a way every day to believe and receive God's love. Look with me in verse three. David says, because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. Scholars believe that verse three is like the linchpin. It's the hinge on which the entire Psalm either caves or stands. In verse three, he says, I can say all of this because I know the love of God that's better than life. Now think about it in terms of maybe a, an employee-employer relationship. Okay, let's say you're, you're an employee and you got a boss. All of us got a boss. Let's say you got a boss and that boss comes to you and he says, he or she says, hey, I want you to love me more. I want you to appreciate me more, right? I want you to appreciate me more. By the very fact that your boss tells you to appreciate them more, does that make you appreciate them more? No, it actually could be worse. You're like, what a jerk. Who do you think you are? You know, love me more, respect me more. No, but if you've had a boss who have, who's given you the resources you need to do your job, who's tried to value your, your contribution to the organization, they, then everything in their possible power to honor you and respect you, you just naturally respect them back because we're hardwired for response. We're hardwired to love when someone loves us first. Think about children. Right? If you go to your kids, I have two kids, both teenagers. If I go to my kids and say, kids, I'm telling you right now, love me more. Love me more. Well, I don't know a lot about parenting, but I know that's not going to work. Right? Making your children love you won't make them love you more. If you want your children to love you more, you love them more first. Your spouse, your friends. That's why John writes in 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. Ephesians 3, 19. Know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. Find a way every day to believe and receive God's love. The message isn't muster it up. The message is receive it. Put yourself in a place where you can receive it now, how do you do that? There's a lot of ways. The primary way we know the love of God since we're 2,000 years past Jesus is through God's word. Had we lived 2,000 years ago, we, the primary way would actually would have been to have seen Jesus, to interact with Jesus. There was no love ever known in the world like was fulfilled and experienced with those who looked into the eyes of Jesus. But because we're 2,000 years away, we, we can't experience that. So we, we read the, the men and women who, who wrote about the experience and we, our hearts are warmed through the word of God. Carve out time every day to receive God's love through his word. Maybe this summer you start with the Psalms, one Psalm a day. Maybe it's Romans 8, or maybe it's a passage like Ephesians. I'm gonna be preaching on Ephesians this fall. You could actually go through the book of Ephesians every day. It's only six chapters. Every day between now and like November, you would know Ephesians. Talk about the love of God. Take time every day to pray, experience silence, prayer, meditation. 
The reason I think in my own heart at times where I struggle with praying is because I see it as a duty and not a delight. This is what I mean by that. What if instead of praying, instead of you setting a timer or you trying to figure out how many days in a row you prayed, what if you just said, you know what, today I'm gonna go pray. I don't know exactly what I'm gonna pray about, but I'm gonna go pray. I'm gonna spend some time with Jesus and I'm gonna let him love me while I pray. That's a whole different perspective. It's not duty, it's delight. Maybe it's taking a walk in nature, going for a walk in the woods, sitting on your front porch this evening. Maybe it's driving with your windows down to experience in some way God's goodness and his love. This week, you can experience the love of God through eating good, healthy food. You can also experience the love of God by eating bad, unhealthy food. Yesterday, we celebrated my mom's birthday and we had a stack of chocolate chip pancakes, right? If you don't know the love of God through a stack of chocolate chip pancakes, there's no hope for you. There's just no hope for you. You can know the love of God through your favorite music or through good family, through good friends. We have a community group that meets every Monday night. And in our community group, I look forward to Monday nights because it's through those people. Yes, they're jacked up. So am I. But we gather together and it it encourages me because I see somehow the love of God in them. Exercise, going to a doctor and helping them find out or figure out, letting them get you on a path where you can experience more of the goodness of God. Visiting an elderly friend or family member or spending time with children is a great way to learn and love the love of God. Once again, thank you for joining us this week. We look forward to serving you in next week's podcast, along with our weekend services every Sunday morning at 9 and 11 a.m.